Section 6 of the Story of the First Transcontinental Railroad by William Francis Bailey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Harvey. Indian Troubles During Construction. History of 1864, 1865, 1866, 1867, 1868, and 1869. Government posts established. Major North and his Pawnees. Ex-Soldiers, Ogallala, Plum Creek, Sydney, Battle at Julesburg. The country through which the Union Pacific Railroad was built was the hunting grounds of the Pawnee, Sioux, Arapahoes, Crows, Blackfeet, Bannock, Snake, and Shoshones, the first three on the plains and the others to the west. These were among the most warlike tribes of the west, and during the construction of the road they were the occasion of serious trouble, not to speak of the annoyance and delay as well as the extra expense occasioned. The following summarizes the conditions existing on the plains during the time the road was under construction. During the summer of 1864, the whole line of the Overland Stage from St. Joseph, Missouri to Salt Lake City was subject to Indian depredations, so much so that Ben Holliday, its proprietor, asked the government for five soldiers at each of the stage stations and two to accompany each coach. Without these, he stated, he would discontinue the line. The year 1865 was known as the Bloody Year on the Plains, and its history is one constant account of attacks, skirmishes, depredations, and murders by the Indians. Notwithstanding the peace conference at Laramie in May, the year 1866 was not much better, and the relations between the whites and the Indians were kept at a fighting point, culminating in a massacre by the Indians at Fort Phil Kearney of 81 regular soldiers. The year 1867 opened with troubles all along the line. The government inspectors reporting Indian depredations have caused some serious embarrassment to the locating, construction, and operation of the line. Constant and persistent attacks have occasioned great delay and expense. The government aroused to the dangers of temporizing, pushed a large number of troops into the field, restored old and built many new posts. This, together with the ease of communication resulting from the rapidly extending railroad, had a deterrent effect on the Indians. 1868 was a repetition of the preceding year. A peace conference at Fort Laramie, called for April, was not attended by the Indians until November. Numerous attacks were made by them on the whites, and the country kept in a turmoil. During the fall, there was desperate fighting, and the army, assisted by citizen soldiers, punished the Indians, as they had never been punished before, resulting in a much better condition of affairs during 1869 and thereafter. Nearly all the Indian troubles occurred on the plains and east of Cheyenne, west thereof, either owing to better organization on the part of the railroad and military, or else to the intimidation of the tribes, there was but little annoyance from this source. The surveying parties were, as a rule, 
accompanied by a small detachment of regulars, and to this fact may be attributed their comparative small loss of life. While they lost but few of their number, still they were compelled to work at great disadvantage and frequently brought to a full stop by the presence of war parties and numbers too great to be ignored. They, the surveying and engineering parties, were not so strong numerically as the grading outfits and did not have their resources. The different parties not only were frequently driven in, but a number of them were obliged to fight for their lives. The station Hilldale, Wyoming, perpetuates the name of one engineer, Mr. Hill, who was killed near this place by the Indians while locating the road. Another victim of the Indians was Colonel Percy, in charge of an engineering party on the preliminary survey. He was surprised by a party of them 24 miles west of Medicine Bow, Wyoming. Retreating to a cabin, he stood them off for three days, at the end of which time they managed to set fire to the building, and when the roof fell in, he was compelled to get out, whereupon he was attacked and killed. This took place near Hannah Station, Wyoming, which was originally called Percy, in memory of the colonel. Realizing the necessity of military to protect the construction forces, the government established numerous forts or posts along the line. These, Fort McPherson, Nebraska, originally called Cantonment McKean, then Cottonwood Springs Cantonment, established February 1866. Fort Sedgwick, Colorado, about four miles from the town of Julesburg, Colorado. Fort Mitchell, near Scott's Bluff, Nebraska, a temporary proposition occupied only during the construction period. Fort Morgan, Wyoming, not far from Sydney, Wyoming, established May 1865, abandoned May 1868. Fort D. A. Russell, near Cheyenne, Wyoming, established July 1867, still occupied as an army post. Fort Sanders, Wyoming, near Laramie, established June 1866. Fort Fred Steele, 15 miles east of Rawlins, established June 1868. Fort Halleck, 22 miles west of Medicine Bow, abandoned 1866. General Sherman had prophesied that the influx of graders, teamsters, with their following, would bring enough whiskey into the country to kill off all the Indians, and that the only good Indians were the dead ones. One of the most valuable forces during the building of the road was a battalion of four companies of Pawnee Indians, mustered into the United States service under the command of Major Frank J. North. January 13, 1865. This action being taken at the insistence of General Custer. They proved most effective, notwithstanding their somewhat ludicrous appearance. They were furnished the regular soldier's uniform, which they were permitted to modify to suit their individual ideas and taste. As a rule, their headdress was the customary Indian one of feathers. Their arms were the regulation carbine and revolver of the cavalry, to which they added, on their own accord, hatchet 
knife, spear, etc. And when fighting was to be done, they would strip down to the buff, or rather the copper skin. The construction forces at this time were being annoyed by the Cheyennes and Sioux, both of whom were the bitter foes of the Pawnees. Fort Kearney was the headquarters of Major North, and his Pawnees and their duty was to protect the construction forces while at work. As illustrating conditions existing, the following is of interest. A large body of Indians appeared on the scene near Julesburg. Major North and 40 of his Pawnees started from Fort Kearney to the scene of the anticipated trouble. On the way, he found the bodies of 14 white men who had been killed by the Indians and their bodies mutilated beyond recognition, their scalps torn off, tongues cut out, legs and arms hacked off, and their bodies full of arrows. On arriving at Julesburg, he found the place besieged. Falling on the Sioux, he put the whole band to fight, killing 28 in the transaction. This party of Indians had but a few days before surprised a party of 14 soldiers, killing them all. Soon after this trouble broke out with the Cheyennes, Major North and a party of 20 of his Pawnees started to look into the matter, and while out, struck a band of 12 Cheyennes. Taking after them, the Major was the only one who could get near them, on account of his men's horses being tired out. But being better mounted, he was able to get within gunshot and killed one of the Cheyennes. Seeing his Pawnees were some distance in the rear, the whole party turned on Major North. He shot his horse, and using its body for a breastwork, fought the whole party, killing or wounding nine of them, and held them at bay until his men were able to come up. This fight was considered one of the most daring on the plains, and added greatly to the fame of the Major and his Pawnees. After the completion of the road, Major North retired, and in company with W.F. Cody, Buffalo Bill, went into the cattle business near North Platte. As has been stated, many of the officers and men engaged on the work were ex-soldiers accustomed to the use of arms. The construction trains, and in fact all of the workers, were liberally supplied with arms, principally rifles, and it was the boast that ten minutes any time was long enough to transform a gang of graders or track layers into a battalion of infantry. Every man on the work was armed, and it was the custom for the graders to carry their guns to and from their work, keeping them stacked within easy distance while at actual work. The front was seldom bothered. As a rule, there were too many at hand to make an attack attractive. It was the little detached parties, or single individuals, that were most often molested. After the rails were down, the trains, passing to and from the front, and the employees at the isolated stations, and most especially the section gangs, were in constant danger. Among the first serious experiences was that of a construction train near Ogallala, Nebraska. A party of Sioux decided to capture it and compel it to stop. They massed their ponies on the track, with the result that there were some twenty or more dead horses without damage of any consequence to the train. 
the trainmen used their guns and pistols to good advantage, resulting in a number of the Indians being killed. Later on, one of the Sioux of the party, on being interviewed, said, Smoke wagon, big chief, ah, no good. At another time, the Indians succeeded in capturing a freight train near Plum Creek and held it and its crew in their possession. General Dodge, the chief engineer, with a number of men, train crew, discharged men, etc., was running special, returning from the front to Omaha when the news reached them. And to quote the general's own words, they, the men on his special train, were all strangers to me. The excitement of the capture and the reports coming by telegraph brought all of them to the platform, and when I called on them to fall in and go forward and retake the captured train, every man on the special went into line and by his position showed he had been a soldier. We ran down slowly until we came in sight of the train. I gave the order to deploy as skirmishers, and at that command they went forward as steadily and in as good order as we had seen the old soldiers climb the face of the Kennesaw under fire. The train was quickly recaptured. Another incident occurred in the same locality, four miles west of Plum Creek, in July 1867. A band of southern Cheyennes under Chief Turkey Leg took up the rails and ties over a dry ravine. It so happened that the train was preceded by a hand car with three section men. Encountering the break, the car and men fell into the ravine, and one of their men was captured and scalped. In his agony, he grabbed a scalp and got away in the darkness, as had his two more fortunate companions. The engineer discovered the break by the light of his headlight, but not in time to stop his train, and the engine and two carloads of brick immediately following it toppled into the ravine. With the balance of the train, boxcars loaded with miscellaneous freight, piling up and roundabout. The engineer and fireman were caught and killed in the wreck. The conductor, discovering the presence of the savages, ran back and flagged the second section following, which was backed up to Plum Creek Station. In the morning, the inhabitants of Plum Creek, together with the train crews, sallied out to give battle with the Indians, but found they had departed. From the cars, they had thrown out boxes and bales, taking from them whatever had struck their fancy. Bolts of bright-colored flannels and calicoes had been fastened to their ponies, which streamed in the wind or dragged over the prairies. Major North and his Pawnees were at the front, scattered in small detachments between Sydney and Laramie. Within 24 hours, they arrived on the scene in a special train. Following the trail, in about 10 days, they fell upon the Cheyennes, 150 in number, and killed 15, taking two prisoners, one of them the nephew of Turkey Leg, their chief. Another occurrence took place in April 1868, near Elm Creek Station. A band of Sioux attacked, killed, and scalped a section gang of five, and on the same day attacked the station of Sydney, coming out on the bluff above it and firing down on the town. At the time of the attack, two conductors were fishing in Lodgepole Creek, 
a little way below the station. They were discovered by the Indians, who charged on them and shot one, who fell forward as if killed. The other happened to have a pistol on his person, with which he kept them at a distance until he reached the station, where he arrived with four arrows sticking in him and some four or five other bullet and arrow wounds, none of which proved serious. His companion also recovered. Another serious attack was made on a train near Ogallala Station in September 1868. The ends of two opposite rails were raised so as to penetrate the cylinders, the engine going over into the ditch and the cars piling up on top of it. The fireman was caught in the wreck and burned to death. The engineer and forward brakeman riding on the engine escaped unhurt. The train crew and passengers being armed defended the train, keeping the Indians off until a wrecking train and crew arrived. Word being sent to Major North, who was at Willow Island. With one company of his Pawnees, he came to the scene, followed the Indians, and overtaking them, two were killed, the balance escaping. The following month, the same party attacked a section gang near Potter Station, driving them in and running off a bunch of 20 horses and mules. About 15 of Major North's Pawnees started in pursuit, overtook and killed two, and recovered the greater part of the stolen stock. The Great Battle of Construction Days occurred near Julesburg in July 1869. The regulars, under General Carr, and the Pawnees, 150, under Major North, had put in two months scouting for several bands of Cheyennes and Sioux that had been raiding through the Republican and Solomon Valleys, attacking settlements, burning houses, killing and scalping men, women and children, and raising cane generally. They ran them to earth near Summit Springs, where they were encamped. On July 11th, they surprised and attacked the Indians, who were under the leadership of Tall Bull, a noted Cheyenne chief. 160 warriors were slain, among them Tall Bull. He was seen as the attack was made, mounted upon his horse, with his squaw and a child behind him, trying to escape. Being headed off, he rode into a draw or pocket in the side of a ravine, where some fifteen other warriors had taken refuge. He had been riding on a very fine horse. This he took to the mouth of the draw and shot. He then sent his squaw and child out to give themselves up. This they did, the squaw approaching Major North with hands raised in token of submission. She then advised the major there were still seven warriors alive in the draw, entreating that their lives be spared. As the Indians were shooting at every man they caught sight of, it was impossible to save them, and they were finally shot down. Among the prisoners taken was a white woman who had been captured by the Indians on one of their raids. She had been appropriated by Tall Bull as his squaw, and when the village had been attacked, he had shot her and left her in his teepee, supposedly dead. Soon after the fight commenced, she was found by one of the officers, who, entering in the lodge, saw her in a sitting position with blood running down her waist. She was a German, unable to speak English, and up to this time had supposed the fight 
was between Indians. On realizing that white men were in the vicinity and thinking when he started to leave her that she was about to be deserted, she clasped him around his legs and in the most pitiful manner begged him by signs and with tears not to leave her to the savages. After the fight, she was taken to Fort Sedgwick, where she recovered, and in a few months afterwards married a soldier whose time had expired. During the fight, the troops captured nearly 600 head of horses and mules, together with an immense amount of miscellaneous plunder, including $1,900 and $20 gold pieces that had been taken from the German woman's father at the time he had been killed and she captured. Of this sum, $900 was turned over to the woman, $600 by the Pawnees, and a balance by the regulars. Had the latter been as generous as the scouts when the appeal for its restoration was made, every dollar would have been returned. The above incidents are but a few out of thousands that occurred during the stormy construction days. They illustrate the trials and dangers encountered by the hardy pioneers. It was not only at the front that trouble was incurred, but after the building had proceeded, the section men, station employees, and train crews were in constant danger. At the stations, it was a rule to build sod forts connected by underground passage with the living quarters, to which retreat could be had in case of Indian attacks. For some time, small squads of soldiers were stationed at every station and section house along the line, being quartered in sod barracks. With the completion of the road and the establishment of regular train service, emigration soon poured in to such an extent as to make the settlers numerous enough to protect themselves, and it was not long until low, like the buffalo, was only a memory. End of section 6. Recording by Paul Harvey.